Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumati Sparks, the open relationship coach at sumatisparks.com. And today we have a special guest named Sonia Brewer. Sonia has a master's degree and is a body-centered psychotherapist and relationship expert based in the San Francisco Bay Area. She specializes in helping women, couples, and partners of all sorts create extraordinary relationships. Sonia has had in-depth training in somatic psychology as well as training in relational psychotherapy, trauma recovery, somatic experiencing, and sensory motor psychotherapy. Sonia's work is also deeply influenced by training and experience in bodywork, dance, mindfulness meditation, and sacred sexuality. Welcome to the show, Sonia. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Glad to have you here. So tell me a little bit about yourself and how did you end up specializing in alternative relationships? <laughs> That's a great question, Sumati. I have <laughs> been... Um, on my own journey, um, really, since I graduated from college, I knew very early in my relationship life that I did not want to be monogamous and that I had this vision that relationship could be a kind of um, uh, a path for awakening. I don't know where I got that idea from, but very, very early I knew that I wanted to be on a on a journey that was about um, – deepening my relationship with spirit and, I don't know, getting bigger, getting, um, I don't know, more expanded. And so I never approached a real intimate relationship from a, a kind of standard, you know, you find your person, you get married, you lead a, you know, happily ever after monogamous with two kids and a dog kind of life. <laughs> um, and so when I became a therapist, you know, it was just a sort of natural um, segue into being able to support other people in creating their relationships on their own terms. Beautiful. I love that because relationship really is such a path of personal growth. In fact, some people say, you know, getting into a relationship is like pouring miracle grow on your character defects. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. (laughs) <laughs> so tell us about somatic practice. Um, what's the difference yes. between a relationship therapy and uh, somatic psychotherapy? Or how, does, how do they intersect? Right. Well, so when I became a therapist, you know, the way that I entered um, psychotherapy was uh, that I, I actually was a body worker for many years. And I was always really fascinated when I was uh, giving someone body work, massage or acupressure, and, you know, they had, um, you know, tears come or uh, stories would arise from their histories or memories would come. And um, I, I got really curious about that. And one day, I don't know how, I stumbled upon somatic psychology. And I thought, oh, wow, this is amazing, this this is a way that I can learn about and work with the intersection between body, mind, and spirit. And so when I became a psychotherapist, I didn't want to just do talk therapy. I wanted to um, really have people bring their whole selves into the room. So, you know, that included um, offering body work and getting people sort of off the couch and uh, moving and exploring um, 
what they were learning or the stories they were telling in a more embodied way. So with relationship therapy, what that means is, you know, of course people talk, you know, that's a part of the work, but I also like to get people uh, engaging in other ways. Sometimes the dynamics that people are exploring um, are easier to explore without words and through movement, for example, or, you know, if I'm trying to get people to learn about uh, a new skill, say boundaries, for example, it can be more useful to practice uh, in a more kinesthetic way rather than just talking about the ideas. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And how do you bring your background of um, body work and dance into your sessions? Beautiful, yeah. Well, um, I do... I don't do body work with couples, although I do sometimes teach couples some simple practices, hands-on practices that they can do with each other uh, to deepen their um, connections or the intimacy between them. Um, And, you know, I do sometimes, not so much with couples, more um, in my individual work, I do sometimes have people explore authentic movement, which is um, a movement practice that invites um, an experience of kind of deep witnessing and um, sort of moving, letting the body kind of uh, move from a kind of internal, deep internal impulse. So um, that those are two ways. And then with couples, really, I would say my background in dance has less to do with what I have, what I'm teaching the couples to do and more to do with the way I see. You know, there's a a particular um, quality of seeing that I bring to, uh, you know, seeing not just what couples are saying to each other, but really like how they move together. You know, what is the Mm -hmm. dynamic? What is the dance that they're in as a couple um, being together Mm -hmm. yes it's funny you should say authentic movement because a client that i'm working with right now um they opened their relationship for their first time and i asked them you know how when so it was the husband going to see his lover for the first time and coming back to the wife so i asked the wife like what do you want to do when he comes back what what do you think you're going to need from him and she said i want us to do authentic movement i want him to just witness me just witness me embodying the feelings that came up for me having you go off to see your lover for the first time. So that was really beautiful, the way they used that Mm. to reconnect when he came back home. (laughs) Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. Mm. So what, um, how did you, so so you had a history of non-monogamy, but is it true that you're not practicing that now? Oh, no, I'm still polyamorous. I've been polyamorous oh, okay. my entire adult okay. life. Okay. Mm-hmm. I ha- I, the person mm-hmm. that recommended I speak with you thought that you were not. So tell me a little bit about your background <laughs> in uh, practicing non-monogamy. Yeah, I've been, um, yeah, I've been polyamorous my whole adult life, and um, I, I have pretty consistently had a primary uh, so I've been in more hierarchical dynamics. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I have some longstanding um, secondary relationships that, um, you know, are wonderful. And 
it's interesting to talk about it now because for many years when I would talk about being polyamorous, there was lots of intrigue and juice in the conversation because we were still learning how to do it and we were still, you know, sometimes even when we had more experience, we were still dating people who didn't have as much experience. But now my my poly life is pretty stable. I don't have a lot of Mm -hmm. (laughs) intrigue. It's pretty... um, you know, run in the mill. I just have multiple people that I love, and it, you know, it's it's pretty good, pretty satisfying. Just a boring, stable, loving, polyamorous setup, huh? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's great. But I'm sure that you learned a lot of lessons on the along the way. What were some of the mistakes you made that you uh, wish oh, you had known, wow. had more information about before you got into it? Let's see. Um, whew. So many. I think the the biggest one I would say is when I first started being um, um, really practicing intentionally with my um, partner, my sort of first major partner after I graduated from college, um, and we started to date other people. The thing that um, I was just really open. I was just like, you know, interested in dating people, and I would be would tell people I was poly, and you know, regardless of whether they identified as poly or not, you know, even if they were just kind of curious about it, you know, I would be willing to explore connections with folks, and um, you know, a lot of times people will really let you know whether they have the capacity to explore an open situation fairly early, even if they're saying with their words, oh, I'm totally open to this and I'm very interested. There will be all kinds of signs that they are actually not either op- really open or capable of navigating an open um, relationship situation, and so mm-hmm. you know, earlier in my relationship life, I would I would spend a lot more time, you know, trying to get someone sort of up to speed <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> around this lifestyle, and um, and now I I just don't do that. You know, people have to be fairly sophisticated in their relationship life or their relationship skills for me to be willing to engage them. So you're not having to do so much teaching all the time. Well, teaching and also struggling. I mean, people who are um, ambivalent about it or say they want it, but really they're trying to get you because they have some story that you wouldn't be polyamorous if you were with the right person and they're just going to teach you how to, you know, they're going to get you or whatever. (laughs) Whatever those stories are, you know, it just, it creates a level of uh, struggle and hardship that is, I just don't think is necessary and I'm not willing to do it anymore. Mm -hmm. Good for you. Yeah, and I think that we all need to be discerning when we select um, uh, additional partners in our life. You know, do they have any experience? Are they um, likely to glom onto you and you're their only partner and need too much from you? Those those are definitely good questions to ask. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what what are some of the most common issues that you see um, in your clients that come in seeking alternative relationship counseling? Mm-hmm, hmm I think that there are uh, a couple of things. Um, one, most people don't come in out the back naming what I think are the two most common issues, but we eventually get to them, and that's sex and money. 
so people will come in and they'll say, we need to work on our communication. But as we're working on the communication, it's like, oh, but what you need to talk about is <laughs> sex or <Mm-hmm>. money. <laughs> so, <clears throat> excuse me. You know, for sex, it's really this desire discrepancy um, experience, which is so common, right, that people Mm -hmm. have different levels of desire that they're bringing to their connection. And a lot of couples need support uh, learning how to navigate that without uh, making each other wrong or becoming Mm -hmm. more disconnected um, in -hmm. talking about it. And then money, because so many of us have not been trained, you know, to talk about money, you know, we've been trained that to keep it a secret or to, mm-hmm. um, you know, like we keep it a secret, keep it a secret, and then we get in a relationship and all of a sudden it's all supposed to just work out. But we have never mm-hmm. practiced talking about money or sharing about money or making, you know, joint decisions about money, right? So um, money's a really big one. Mm-hmm. And so why are those the two most common issues? Are they related somehow? Hmm. Well, that's a good question. You know, I, I actually, I think that they're related in the in the way that they're both taboo topics in our culture. And so, mm-hmm. what people most need when they're talking about sex and what when they're talking about money is is really the same thing, right? Which is a willingness to. Um, stay connected enough to themselves so that they're having the conversations from a grounded center place, centered place and not from uh, reactivity or fear or shame and mm-hmm. uh, a willingness to be curious and open to the other's experience, you know, mm-hmm. because, you know, there's so much variation in how we think about and how we experience these um, these two areas of our lives. But, you know, many of us enter relationship having, um, you know, really carrying stereotypes or projections about how it's supposed to be. And we project mm-hmm. that onto our partner. You know, some couples come in and, you know, one partner or both partners will be like, no, it's supposed to, sex is always supposed to be spontaneous. It just, it's supposed to be that way. And if it's not, if we're not having spontaneous sex all the time, there's something wrong, right? And mm-hmm. that's a, a story, right, that somebody made up. Mm-hmm. And it's in a popular culture, so, you know, it didn't come from, you know, out of nowhere. But that story costs a lot of couples, you know, and the same thing with money. If people come in and, you know, someone has a Prince Charming story and they're like, no, my husband's supposed to handle all the money and take care of everything, and they don't actually talk about that, or maybe they're both carrying that story in some way, and then they discover that they're really different around money and actually, you know, it doesn't work that setup, but they've never talked about it, that can be really problematic. So always we're coming back to this idea that, one, we're all different, that's actually normal and okay, and let's get figure out where we are as individuals and then let's get curious about where our partners are. Mm-hmm. And so do you use some kind of a modality for teaching communication? Um, How do you teach people to begin to communicate in a non-blaming way? Mm, Beautiful. Yeah, I I don't have a specific modality. I mean, I borrow – I have a couple of different um, uh, ways of thinking about communication, and I borrow some – 
techniques and strategies from uh, non-defensive communication and non-violent communication. But my um, central um, approach with communication is first to understand what's the pattern, like what's the relational pattern that couples are in. Because often Mm -hmm. when people are complaining about having difficulty communicating, it's actually not that they don't have communication skills. It's that they don't have communication skills when they're triggered. (laughs) And that's actually a Mm -hmm. different phenomenon, right? I see people with incredible skills around communication who have total breakdowns when they're in murky territory because, you know, the nervous system gets dysregulated and then no one actually has really good communication skills when that's happening. So really I think of it less as uh, being about communication and more about understanding what are the patterns that get kicked off that have people go into fight or flight or, you know, withdrawing or appeasing or dissociating or shutting down, you know, all of those things. What are the patterns that kick off those moves? What are each person's um, sort of moves in that dance, so to speak? You know, so if when I get triggered and I shut down and then you experience me shut down and then you start kind of amplifying the fight because you're trying to reach me and then, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and then it just keeps going, that's the cycle we want to start to name so that they can start, the couple or the partners can start to um, recognize when they're stepping into that cycle and interrupt it. And then we bring in, Right. Once people can sort of see, oh, this is the dance that we're in right now. This is the move that I make. Oh, I'm doing that thing again. Then we can pull mm-hmm. in some of those um, communication techniques and also just other way, other relational techniques. So sometimes it's not about words. It's about how we're being together in those moments when there's a trigger in the space or a breakdown. Uh, it may be that words are not the thing. But you know, couples can start to figure out what are the what are the practices to interrupt those patterns once they actually can recognize what the patterns are. Mhm. Cool. Does that make sense? And you talked, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I really like that you talked about when we're triggered. It's a whole different ball game. We may have excellent communication skills, but they go out the window when we're in a triggered mode. And I think it's really great to um, to name and identify the patterns because then you can bring humor to it. Um, One of my partners and I, we have this game we play. If one of us says the you word, like you did this, you did that, we we amplify it. We say um, you, 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 and we just exaggerate it and make it really funny and we start laughing. (laughs) So um, to have those kinds of games or some sort of silly um, key word that you use that re- helps remind you when you're triggered or even when you're super triggered just to say time out. And right. we actually have a sacred, a sacred time out. If one of us says time out, it's sacred. Like don't say another word because you're going to regret it later. <laughs> so yeah, to have That's those great. little tricks, That's super helpful. So you can cool off, get, get a nervous system back and come back together. <laughs> That's right. Um, and so you talked about desire discrepancy. Um, and so how do you counsel people who have, who have a desire discrepancy? Um, now, if they're, if they're poly, then that's one thing. But if they're not, um, maybe you can tell me how you deal with poly people and 
monogamous people. Right. Well, actually, surprisingly, I I find that the conversation with poly poly people is often very similar to the conversation with um, people who are monogamous. I mean, even mm-hmm. even if a person has um, more partners to to satisfy their sexual needs. Um, there can still be a feeling of discrepancy with a partner, right? And that mm-hmm. still brings up can bring up tender feelings. So, mm-hmm. you know, the uh, the first thing I say to everyone about dis- desire discrepancy is that it's normal, right? It's actually normal for there to be differences between us. And so, we want to reframe um, a desire discrepancy from something is wrong to something is different between us, and let's get curious about what those differences are, right? Because the thing about desire is that it particularly, um, if I'm working with women, it's so deeply context-dependent, but we can't address um, the needs around context. We can't address what a woman needs to get to or a person needs to get to accessing their desire if you're fighting about, you know, what's wrong. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It's like we have to clear Absolutely. out the, the the blame around it and the sense that something's broken so that we can get uh-huh. to what's actually happening here and what are what how do we create the conditions, right, that – will um, support someone's um, unfolding their desire. And it is very common for people in relationships to have very different needs, very different needs around what those conditions are and how you Mm -hmm. get there. So um, that's the very first thing that I counsel people um, around. And then... Uh, and then the second piece is about context. You know, what does it take? And this requires someone to be really um, – it, it requires partners to be really curious about each other, but also for the um, the at, for the individual, right, really getting curious about one's own uh, desire and what are the contexts that create sexy for you as an individual, right, so that you can – help your partners help you, is really, really Mm -hmm. critical. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of people who um, sort of approach desire like, um, well, I'm not feeling it and I'm just going to wait until I feel turned on or I'm Mm -hmm. not feeling it and I'm going to wait till you turn me on. And Mm -hmm. I actually think that that's that's a little bit of a trap for folks because, one, there are plenty of folks who actually don't actually feel what they would name as desire until they're already in some sort of um, sexual connection. And also, um, if the only, if there's no kind of self-ignition button, (laughs) so to speak, right, like Uh the only way for you to get turned on is like your partner has to do it somehow for you, it can be a little bit of a a trap for partners where there's desire discrepancy and one partner is always leaning into the other one, right? Like both people have to start to work towards um, what I call being, becoming self-ignited. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, there are all kinds of ways to do that, but it starts with um, becoming really, really deeply curious about yourself and about your partner. And didn't you uh, haven't you led workshops in the past around uh, igniting desire for women? 
Absolutely, yeah. It's one of my favorite topics. I'll probably produce another one of those this spring, actually. Um, yeah, I really love working with women around this topic, and uh, it's just amazing to see a woman kind of um, feeling really stuck around desire and then see her have that breakthrough where she feels like she's got access, right, to really not just um, sexiness, but really life force energy. It's like there's a whole nother level of um, of aliveness that can be available once you break through that desire, um, that wall. So, it, yeah, it's absolutely one of my favorite <laughs> Uh, cool. Uh, well, what what, what are some of the suggestions that you have for mature women who may be postmenopausal, or their energy's low, or they may have had an illness? Um, what are some of the suggestions you have for mature women who are not feeling too turned on anymore? <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, that's a really good question and a very common one. Um, the first thing I want to say is that. Um, you know, particularly for um, perimenopausal women, you know, some of the changes that happen physically in the body um, can really it change the way a woman experiences her her arousal. And so, some of the work that we do is um, sort of to distinguish desire from the physical sensation of arousal. Because mm-hmm. what can happen is if, if for example, you're experiencing um, less sensitivity in your uh, with with clitoral stimulation, stimulation, and mm-hmm. you know you kind of go less sensitivity. This is not so interesting. <laughs> I'm just not going to bother, mm-hmm. right? Um, right? Which makes total sense. But mm, if you start to experience uh, play with the idea that desire is bigger than that um, physical sensation, you know, that it is also a psychological experience, that there are other parts of your body that can awaken to um, sensual experience, um, that there's a, there are other ways to deepen your, um, your sensual experience, right, not just your, um, the, the physical experience. Um, sorry, I'm like I'm trying to figure out how to not get too woo woo. <laughs> so I'm trying to answer this oh, question, woo, but woo also is welcome here. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but so, what I really encourage for um, older women is to broaden, essentially broaden their perspective on what a bro- what desire is, right? Because if you don't just make it genital, number one, and you don't just make it about do I feel the impulse, then you open the door to actually I can start to learn how to generate the impulse, right? And it doesn't have to come from what it what I recognize it coming from before. And there are lots of different ways to do that, right? There's tantric work, there's massage, there's working with sensual touch, there's Taoist practice. You know, there's lots of different ways to kind of expand the realm of um, sensual experience, and what I f- found is when a, an older woman starts to do that, often um, a certain level of sensation can return, but also the mm-hmm. whole experience of sexuality gets broader and deeper and better. So, um, mm. yeah. Beautiful. Thank you. 
If you're just joining us, you're listening to Leading Edge Love Radio, and this is your host, Sumati Sparks, the open relationship coach at sumatisparks.com. And we're speaking with psychotherapist Sonia, Sonia Brewer. Sonia Brewer. <laughs> um, and we're talking about, you, you talked about separating desire from pleasure, I think is what you called it. Arousal. Arousal. So desire from arousal. Right. 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 Right, and so the, so arousal is more the body sensations, um, orgasms, um, and and desire is kind of a broader uh, a desire to connect with another person, to connect with your own energy, um, more of a wholeness around sexuality. Am I getting that right? Yeah, that's kind of how I think about it. Uh huh. And you appeared in a documentary called Hearts Cracked Open, Tantra for Women Who Love Women. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, you know, I, I'm really lucky that I discovered um, this community um, when, when I was in my 20s, actually. Um, this woman was teaching, uh, she's local to the area, Evelina Rose, and she was doing these, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, these, workshops for women around women who love women who love who uh, around tantra well i think they were open just to women generally but i went with my partner who was a woman at the time and um i uh it just sort of opened a whole new world for me and i was in my 20s so i was still fairly young so it really shaped my um my whole relationship with my own sexuality and with desire and and really with my my own um kind of aliveness, you know, it was, it was really transform, transformative to have that be my entry point into sexual exploration. And so what, what is different? Is there anything different in a Tantra practice for when there's two women together versus a man and a woman practicing Tantra? Um, well, Yes and no. <laughs> I mean, we're always uh-huh. playing with the energy, right? You know, there's breath work, there's movement, um, there's, um, you know, sometimes we work, we're not just working with polarities, you know, in traditional tantric practice, there's a lot of polarity work and um, with two women um, or with people, um, not just women actually, um, but people who who are interested in playing with gender and the power dynamics um, there, you know, you can also work with sameness, you know, and and amplify your energies that way. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think that different people have different experiences of how they play with that, but I would say my own experience has been it's not actually that different, except that... Mm -hmm. um, women in, that I have been with have been more open to playing with the sameness end of the the energetic spectrum. Mm-hmm. And, and what about polyamory? Um, do you notice any unique issues coming up in same-sex polyamorous arrangements? Hmm. You know, I I could try to make a I could try to speculate about that. I mean, I'm trying to think. So many of my poly p- 
people that I see, I mean, they're so um, advanced in some ways. You know, they really, they're really thoughtful about um, dynamics around gender. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I know that there are more, um, there's stuff that comes up around gender and power um, in different ways in hetero pairings versus um, um, same-sex, same-gender pairings. But um, it's a little bit hard to talk about without <laughs> feeling like I'm stereotyping or generalizing, you mm-hmm. know, too broadly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But the the biggest thing I would say is that the, the, the gender, you know, some of the dynamics, I mean, you know, the men are for Mars, women are for Venus, that kind of perspective. Um, I'm not I'm not wholly bought into really simplistic essentializing um, uh, models for talking about m- men and women. However, some of those um, ways of uh, of thinking are useful. You know, when I think of when I'm sitting with a poly constellation where there are, are heterosexual pairings versus um, same-sex pairing, pairings, I can sometimes see some of those uh, men are for Mars, women are for Venus moments unfolding. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's a place where we have to do some translation or some slowing down or unpacking uh, dynamics that sometimes, um, you know, there's just a lot of assumption in our culture around gender. And so, uh I just, you know, those are moments to slow down and look really carefully at what's happening, you know. Mm-hmm. Of course. And then what about people of color who practice polyamory? Have you noticed any unique issues around that? I mean, the the biggest thing is because I'm in the Bay Area and the poly scene isn't super diverse, the biggest issue I hear about from people of color is um, finding community in places where they're not going to feel tokenized or um or fetishized or have to <laughs> yeah or fetishized or you know feel like they're not going to feel um emotionally um safe you know um mm-hmm. so that's the biggest issues i it feels like the issues around the the relational issues that people are navigating are similar across the board but um mm-hmm. You know, creating community is a thing. Yeah, that's a good point. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to go back to this issue of desire discrepancy because it is one of the primary issues that I deal with my clients and why they want to open their relationship. Um, mm. I just find that you were talking about sex and money being taboo issues, and there's this whole issue of people not talking about sex um, Yes. Uh, you know, we, we don't we don't talk about it. it. Should just happen, and we should supposed to just know what each other likes from I don't know watching porn or something. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> so how do you deal with? Um, let's say a woman is finally finding her voice, and she tells her partner what she wants, and he or whoever her partner is, they um, feel defensive about that. They feel hurt that their partner's telling them what they want um, because they think they should just know. Do you run into that? Yes. Oh, my goodness, Sumati, yes. (laughs) (laughs) It's so common. People think that they're just supposed to 
No, it's all just supposed to happen automatically because, you know, that's what happens in the movies. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it is really something to, um, to begin to teach people, and, and this happens across gender, right? Um, it's not just men and women, but I just see this happen all the time. Um, it is something to teach people um, that actually uh, two things. One, our job, our job when we're committed to being a good lover is to be open and curious about our partner's experience. That's your job. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Your job is also Mm -hmm. to be open and curious about your own experience, to stay connected to yourself. So it's not to leave yourself Mm -hmm. and go all into your partner. But, you know, so when your partner gives you the gift of sharing what they like, what they want, what's not working, what would feel better, really, like, people should be jumping up and down (laughs) when that happens. Mm -hmm. So I really work with people around that. And also just with working with what is the underlying thing, the underlying insecurity that gets touched so that you're not able to, you know, be open and curious about your partner's experience. What is it that if your partner says, ooh, actually what I'd really love is, right, that you go into that probably young, wounded place, and we explore that, we unpack that, and then we really work to, it's like a practice to to um, really encourage our partners really to, um, to share what they want, because that is the biggest gift. Right, exactly. And I often tell men who want to know how to be a good lover that the number one thing they can do is to reassure their partner, like really reassure them, and, and frequently throughout your intimate time with them to continue to reassure them that you really want to know what they like because it, it, so many women I found are afraid to speak up because they've heard, oh, boy, you're really controlling or something like that. <laughs> right, right. And, you know, it's unfortunate because people who have that reaction then miss out, you know, because a woman mm-hmm. who is satisfied, oh, my God, like what is possible <laughs> in the sexual encounter with a woman who's really deeply satisfied, the level at which she can open and, you know, really, um, you know, be available for a whole other kind of level of experience. It's really incredible. And so someone who does not get that and is so wrapped up in their own stuff that they're unable to take in, you know, what their partner, um, what would offer, give their partner pleasure, I mean, it's just, it's a travesty. <laughs> Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, This is not what I want for people. Right. Um, And so what do you do if you have a a couple that comes in and one partner is is really into their personal growth and the other one isn't and they're just kind of being dragged in? What do you do about that? (laughs) Yeah. That is also very common. Um, I mean, usually if they're being dragged in, the the, – positive sign is that they allowed themselves to be dragged in. So that is something, right? So Mm -hmm. I just start Mm -hmm. with that little kernel and I just try to like figure out, okay, what is it? Like what's worth, what would make, what makes it worth it for them to be there? Mm -hmm. Even if they're, um, you know, just seem really stuck. It's like for some reason they have chosen to allow themselves to be in that room. And what is the thing that they are most longing for that has them Mm. willing, you know? And I just Mm -hmm. spent a lot of time trying to find that thing. Um, Because the other thing is, 
you know, if someone has had to drag their partner in and their partner, and we don't figure out what that thing is that makes it worth them, worth it for them to be there, you know, often the person who's done the dragging is kind of at their wit's end. It's just exhausting, mm-hmm. you know, to be doing that. Mm-hmm. So we want to see if we can get that person bought in. And often it doesn't take much, you know. The other thing is a lot of people are dragged in uh, or feel or – you know, are really hesitant because they expect they're going to come to therapy and they're going to be blamed. You know, they're going to find out all the things that are wrong with them and their partner who may have already been complaining is just going to complain more and now the therapist and the Mm -hmm. partner are joined together. You know, that's (laughs) a big fear. So, you know, we also really work with that. Like I talk about my room as a no-blame paradigm and we really are trying to work on stripping out blame and, again, getting curious about what's the dynamic that's unfolding between them and how does each of them contribute to it and how can each of them start to interrupt it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Beautiful, yeah. And I think I love what you said about just appreciating that they're there, that they showed up and uh, just giving them a lot of appreciation for the courage to do that. <laughs> yes. So um, what are some of the other the other issues specifically that you find in the area of polyamory? Do you work with triads, threesomes, foursomes, or moresomes? <laughs> yeah, I work with, I can fit up to five people in my office. And mm. um, so I've, and I've worked with up to five people. Um, these people come in with lots of different things. You know, sometimes it's just normal relationship stuff. It just happens to be poly people. I mean, that's that's mm-hmm. most often what it is, the same things that mm-hmm. anybody dealing with relationship stuff is dealing with. Sometimes they're dealing with big transitions, you know, moving in together, you know, somebody's having a baby, um, you know. Mm-hmm. And, again, those are issues that are really common for all kinds of people, but then when you're poly, there's just like another layer level of, you know, process because you need to be thoughtful, particularly if you have multiple people living together. Um, you know, there's just like more more things to figure out, including all the things that mm-hmm. aren't sort sort of predetermined by culture. You know, like if a kid right. has four parents, you know, who's who in the mix? <laughs> you know, who gets <laughs> right. called what and you know, all of that. So, but mostly I feel like, um, so that's with established poly people. And then I get a lot of people who are just starting out, you know, they're just opening their relationships. And um, that's the most common poly specific issue that I get, you know, just like, okay, we're doing this for the first time. And how are we, what are we doing? (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So what do you you do? Do you give them um, any kind of writing assignments or, help them figure out what uh, what their open relationship would ideally look like to them? Mm-hmm. It depends. Some people I'm really trying to figure out what's motivating them in the first place because, you know, sometimes I get people who are talking about opening their relationships, but then when they get in the office, I realize they're not fully aligned. You know, someone is doing it, you know, because someone else wants it, but they don't really want it or um, somebody's doing it because they're actually, they got one foot out the door, um, and but they don't know how to talk about what's not working for them, you know. So mm-hmm. with people who are brand new, I spend a lot of time just figuring out, okay, what's going on here? You know, what is, what's, what is um, this particular path in service of for them? 
And then if we get to the point where they're like, no, this is really, this feels right for us, this is the right move, and we want to do it, you know, then we talk, we, you know, I have worksheets that I sometimes have people fill out and we talk about them, you know, so they can start to dream into what's their vision for the kind of polyamory or open relationship they want. You know, and then, of course, always in the beginning when you're first starting, there are just things that you never anticipate. You know, you just don't know. You filled out all your checklists, you made all your agreements and all of that, and then, you you know, you you end up in your first set of dates and then like there's all shit hits the fan you just didn't know (laughs) so you know also helping people work out you know all of those things that you could not know what until you stepped in like oh i thought i would be fine with you spending the night but actually i'm not okay with that or you know Mm -hmm. i didn't think i was a really jealous person but my god you know there's a fire in my gut (laughs) how do i deal with this you know so there's all that work Right, it's true. Sometimes we don't know how it's going to feel till we get out there and mix it up. And it's so great to have somebody to support us when we're new at that because we never really know how things are going to feel till we try it. That's right. Yeah. And I'm I mostly just read normalizing article, that for people. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, I was just saying, you know, just normalizing that for people that there is that learning curve. Exactly. Um, And I just read an article recently. Uh, The author said something like, don't talk about opening your relationship. Talk about deconstructing it first. Now, I don't know if that was the word she used, but just the concept of if a monogamous couple decides to open their relationship for their first time, to think that they're just going to add somebody like a unicorn or, you know, they're just going (laughs) to add somebody and everything's going to go on the way it was is, kind of naive that there's something first has to happen where there's an unenmeshment process where they start to make dates and value each other's time. Um, do you find that to be true? I think that's brilliant. I mean, I haven't heard it put quite that way, but yeah, I think that is true. I mean, people enter the open relationship scene in all kinds of ways and, you know, people find their way even when they're super mergy. So, I support it all, but um, I do feel like fundamentally um, there is a kind of rewriting of the story of relationship for anyone who who not just wants to explore polyamory, but really people who want to stay in relationship uh, for a long time and have a healthy, vibrant relationship. I think eventually everyone has to learn how to do that kind of deconstructing process, um, even even monogamous people so that you can actually um, continue to grow and develop as individuals and your relationship can also continue to un- unfold, you know, kind of unfettered. Mm-hmm. Right. And what do you say when people say, oh, I've heard about polyamory or open relationship, and that doesn't work, does it? <laughs> Yeah, I know. I still hear that sometimes. It's kind of interesting, although it's kind of less in my face lately, um, maybe being in the Bay Area and being surrounded by so many poly people now. But, yeah, that's Mm -hmm. still a a thing. And I just sort of say, well, you know, it's worked for me, (laughs) you know, and I know lots of other people (laughs) it works for, you know. I mean, it's so interesting that monogamous people break up, get divorced all the time, but no one says, you know, well, monogamy doesn't work because, you know, (laughs) depending on the statistics, up to 75% of people, monogamous people end up divorced. I mean, like, no one makes that about monogamy. It's mm-hmm. like, 
it's kind of crazy. But <clears throat> the reality is that relationships take work, no matter what kind of relationship you're in. And, you know, it's all a learning uh, process for all of us. Mm-hmm. What are some of the benefits that come from sticking in there and working on our issues and our triggers and coming out the other side of that? Uh, what's Because it is hard work and it's painful and we don't like to look at our, our issues. So what are the goodies that come out of hanging in there and doing that work? Well, I mean, the first thing is it feels good. It's so great to feel kind of, you know, free, <laughs> you know? So, <clears throat> excuse me. I would say the first the first thing is that on the other side, you will feel free. You know, you'll feel lighter. Mm-hmm. You'll feel more spacious. You'll There'll be more room for you and your needs and your feelings and your experiences. Um, and then the other thing is that it, it makes room for a different quality of connection because the kinds of relationships you can have when you're really um, uh, not just deconstructing but um, really creating, you know, I, I teach a workshop called Creative Relationship Design for uh, mm-hmm. geeks, radicals, and weirdos. And, <laughs> you know, one of the things we talk about is, like, you know, what is possible when you really create your relationship, not based on some storybook, but really on what your de- what your heart most deeply longs for. And, and you work with your partners to, you know, meet each other and struggle through and your differences and, you know, just like you make room for all of that. And there's just such a richness that, you know, wasn't, I mean, the life that I live now wasn't even fully imaginable to me as a 20-something-year-old. I just didn't know, mm-hmm. you know, the depth and the, um, you know, just the um, the quality of goodness <laughs> that I could experience, you know, in relationship. But it really is mm-hmm. worth it to do that work. You know, and it was not something that was modeled for me growing up. I didn't see even people I saw long term married monogamous people you know I didn't see them happy in the way I get to experience now you know in their relationships. Mm-hmm. It's just a different level beautiful. did you have role models who had healthy poly relationships when you were first practicing that or at any time? You know, I had people, I don't know if I'd call them role models. I knew people who had healthy poly relationships. I wasn't close enough to them to experience them as role models, but it was helpful to see people like, oh, you've been doing this for 30 years, and you have multiple people that you have been in relationship with for, you know, more than a decade or whatever. You know, that was helpful to see, even though I didn't, I wasn't close enough to those people to sort of really see how it played out for them in the day-to-day. But it was enough. It was enough just for me to see, oh, this does exist. I am not crazy. And it's not some weird Mormon thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, a, a woman I interviewed recently talked about how she got into relationships with healthy couples so that she could see how healthy couples relate to each other she Mm. never experienced that so she put herself right in the middle of a a poly couple so that she could really be in that 
uh, type of relating and, and start to embody it and feel what it's like. So I thought that was a really great yeah. strategy for her. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So is there anything else you want to share with um, uh, with us about your lifestyle and what you love about being poly? And I know for me, I've it's taken me a long time to get clear on exactly who I am as a non-monogamous person. I mean, I tried so many different ways of being poly, and my partners often had a completely different way than me, and there was a mismatch there. So just because you're non-monogamous doesn't mean that you want to do it the same way as another person. Absolutely. And it took me a long time to figure out the way, the way that works for me. Um, and for yeah. me, personally, I like more of a poly family feel where I'm connected with my metamors and um, we have, you know, what do they call it, dinner table polyamory where we're all friends and we hang out. And that's what brings the most joy for me. So when my partner has a new lover, I can say, yay, more, more family members. <laughs> yeah. So that's what I found works for me. And I tried going to play parties for a long time and not fitting in and I kind of came to the conclusion that I wasn't a swinger. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> totally. What did what did you find about yourself and your path, and how how did you settle into it? Mm. Yeah, I feel like I have a little bit of a mixture. I mean, I definitely love the family piece. I think that that was a big part of what drew me um, to open relationships in the first place. Was that I really loved the idea. I, the kind of nuclear family system didn't really make sense to me, and I loved the idea of having multiple people together, sort of creating creating a life and creating a family. Um, together, and that's that has been the thing that has been most um, that I've loved the most is that kind of closeness when it when it happens. Um, I don't require it. I don't insist that my the people that my um, partner dates or my partners are dating that I have to be connected to them because it doesn't always work out that way. But um, it is mm-hmm. lovely when it does does work. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I did a whole episode just on that issue of um you know how can how connected you are with with your metamors and how sometimes you don't like them and <laughs> sometimes right. you wouldn't choose that person but they're there in your life anyway. So yeah, it's it can be complicated, but I think it's good to not have an attachment to how it's supposed to look and to just right. love your partner and know that they have their own soul's journey and they may have something to learn from being with that person. It's none of our That's business right. to get in the way of that. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Well, Sonia, it was really a delight speaking with you and you have so much knowledge. I really appreciate you sharing that with us. And um, before we go, I want to give you a chance to tell our listeners how they can reach you and I think you also have a workshop coming up in Oakland, so please tell us about that. Oh, that's right. Yeah, well, folks can reach me at www.soniabrewer.com. And, yes, I have a workshop coming up on February 19th. Um, it's called Money Talks, an Introduction to the Art of Financial Intimacy for Couples. And uh, I said couples, but really couples and partners. It will be at East Bay Community mm-hmm. Space in Oakland. Great. Awesome. I'll definitely try to make yeah. that. Sounds wonderful. <laughs> okay, Sonia. Well, thanks again for being on the show, and I wish you all the best. Thanks, Sumati. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye.